0: To the high-level podcast series run by UNESCO Inclusive Policy Lab. I am Gabriela Ramos. I'm the Assistant Director General for Social and Human Sciences here at UNESCO, and I have the real pleasure to have Professor Douglas Elmerdorf, who is the Dean of the Harvard Kennedy School, with us. This series introduces listeners to the world's leading thinkers as they discuss the issue of today, which is COVID, the ways of uh, introducing a recovery that is inclusive and smart. With your uh, background in the administration at very high level in the economic sphere, but also in the budget sphere, I feel that you are very well positioned to help us understand the context and advance some of of these policy uh, solutions. So thank you for being with us.
1: Well, thank you, Gabriella, and thank you for inviting me to this conversation.
0: The world has finally converged. The problem is that this convergence is not what we were expecting. It's happening around unsustainable high levels of inequalities. We know that in advanced economies, inequality has been growing. And in the developing countries, even though there has been some narrowing of the gaps, inequality has always been at the very high levels. And these gaps and these vulnerabilities have been exacerbated with the COVID pandemic. As some groups, some uh, parts of our societies were better placed to withstand the the shock while others were very, very left behind. We've learned the lessons from this crisis, come with bold thinking, come with what many people have been calling on a new social contract. How would you advise that this should be built? Do we really need a new deal as we did when we had the previous major international crisis for this post-pandemic world? And, And how should we shape it?
1: I think we absolutely need a new deal. Uh, I see an imperative of making significant economic, social and political changes in many countries around the world. Uh, as you say, we've had uh, growing inequality uh, in many places for a number of decades. Uh, the pandemic has made that worse. I think the pandemic has also laid bare some of the inequalities that have been present for a long time, but maybe maybe people didn't understand uh, well enough. Um, for example, to Kennedy School professors and a colleague elsewhere just published a paper documenting that mortality from COVID in this country after one adjusts for age is uh, notably higher for historically disadvantaged groups uh, like Blacks, Hispanic people, American Indians. Tragically, this finding is not surprising because we know that access to healthcare, access to healthy food, access to, to job security is not equal, is not fair across these demographic groups. Um, we know that people in these groups are disproportionately represented among the folks we started to call essential workers during lockdowns, right? Meaning people who had to go to work uh, and risk being exposed to the virus. while Others of us, like, like myself, uh, could stay safely at home. And so I think that anybody who's been paying any attention to the world over the last uh, 21 months has seen the inequities that had been there exposed for us all to see and made worse. So we need to build now more inclusive economies and societies so people don't feel left behind or left out. This is a moral imperative. We owe this to uh, our fellow travelers on this world. It's also a practical imperative. Uh, People who feel left out are uh, likely to resist uh, constructive change and likely to be prone to demagogues trying to gain their support for uh, destructive changes. So I'm worried, but I'm also optimistic. Um, I see a renewed understanding on many people of how dependent we are on each other, and how much we need good governance and good public leadership to work together. Um, and so I think we need to take advantage of this moment of understanding and make changes. Now, the sorts of changes that I would make I think involve a few categories. There's a, uh, we, we talk often about redistribution. There's a more recently dis- developed term called pre-distribution. And this comes from uh, Jacob Hacker, a very uh, distinguished uh, scholar. Um, what pre-distribution is about, is about changing a system in a way that incomes and opportunities are fairer before the government taxes and transfers come into place. So I think we need to work on making those opportunities uh, in the economy and society more fair. I think part of that is a to make sure we run a high-pressure economy. Um, so from the point of view of, say, the Federal Reserve or other central banks, this means trying to let unemployment fall as far as they can uh, without pushing up inflation. So there are risks, and we're seeing some of that in the United States and elsewhere today. But I think the, the new focus of the Federal Reserve and other central banks on keeping the man for workers high, because that makes sure the people who wouldn't otherwise get offered jobs get offered them, uh, tends to push up wages at the lower end of the distribution. That's really important, but to carry forward, um, again, while being cognizant of inflation. I think a second way to improve opportunities is to make sure we're investing in education and training. The people who work in the knowledge economy are most likely to benefit from technology changes that we're seeing Um, uh, so we need to give more people access to those skills and we can do that and in fact some of the technology the changes in how we teach and learn forced by the pandemic can be used to reach more people uh, in more efficient ways to give them skills and that's for that's for very young people for young children it's also people in high school and college and for people later in their careers so we need to invest in education and training But I also think we need to take seriously the redistribution. It's not just what happens um, in setting up the way markets work, it is also what happens um, through government programs. And uh, countries that could uh, implement big fiscal expansions during the pandemic uh, and did so, um, did better for their citizens. Um, Despite the United States, we had a big surge of unemployment, uh, but then that came right back down again. There was less scarring, we would say, than there has been some previous recessions, like the one following the financial crisis, um, household balance sheets were in better shape, we did not have a wave of evictions from rental housing, and so on. So countries that, not, not, not every country could go big with fiscal policy, um, but those that could and did, did well. Um, more generally, in the United States, um, there's been a growing body of evidence, and I presume these effects are true in other countries as well, although I know the evidence less well more evidence that um, investments in children in poor families pays off not just in the well-being of those children today but pays off in the incomes they earn later and thus in fact in the tax revenue that they pay the taxes they pay later so some of these investments are actually on a present value basis earn positive returns for government budgets but most importantly they're positive investments in our society so i think we need both um more opportunities in the markets and then we need the right kinds of uh strong safety nets after the after markets have done their work
0: in the context of our policy policy lab in unesco we recognize that economic policy has been probably prioritizing efficiency and efficiency of markets um, cost uh, benefit analysis uh, and less uh, including this uh, Redistribution, or uh, ex-ante equality or sustainability. And therefore, what we have is that uh, we're always focusing on growth. And then we think about the impact on the environment or on all social structures uh, later. All these uh, social infrastructure that we have built before might be ill-equipped for these very important uh, uh, proposals that you are making. How do we equip our governments to be in good shape for these kind of innovative policies?
1: That's a very important question as well. And I think we're not fully equipped today, and we need to work at that. Um, I do think in I'm an economist by training, as you know, and I think for economists, we have been as a field too focused on efficiency, uh, not enough on equity. Um, We teach our students that both efficiency and equity considerations are important in setting policies, but I think that we have tend we as a field have tended to focus our efforts more on on efficiency, and that that has affected the policymaking world. Uh, and I think we need to shift our focus a little bit. And so one specific example here would we'll be thinking about international trade. Um, standard feature of an introductory economics course is to say that more open international trade is generally good for an economy as a whole, um, but there will be some people who will lose. From that open trade, um, and then I think, which I believe is was and is right, but then there's too much of the next step being well. We really should focus on the overall economy being better off, <laughs> and not enough concern on those who actually end up losing. Um, and I think my colleague Danny Roderick has been speaking eloquently about this for 20 years now, um, and in part making the point that the gains, the efficiency gains, come precisely because some people lose their jobs doing things that are not Maybe globally efficient, but were the way that they earned their income, um, the way that they contributed to society and felt part of the felt part of their communities, and we need to take very seriously, more seriously than we have, what they um, what they lose from some of these efficiency gains. Um, another example to think about this is um, the U.S. will sometimes say this big policy will raise GDP by one percent or raise GDP growth by a quarter percentage point a year. But that's just the overall pie, of course. It doesn't say who's getting that part of the pie. And I think sometimes economists and policymakers shy away from talking explicitly about distribution because it feels divisive. It's sort of, you talk, you call it winners and losers, and some people, it's clear who should be on your side in a sense, and the the efficiency seems more general. But I think it actually leads us the wrong direction. At this point in the United States, I think our focus should not be on raising GDP per se, or you might say average income, it should be raising um, median income or, or raising the income of the household um, in the middle and lower parts of the distribution. And those lead to different sorts of policies. Um, I think we can be, be more explicit about this. And so, uh, for example, I just joined an advisory group for an initiative trying to analyze the effects of policies on people of different races in the United States. Um, long-standing practice of the Congressional Budget Office, which I led to estimate the effects of policies on the budget, sometimes on the overall economy, sometimes on people different income levels. We can do more of that. And one thing that's important for us in this country, particularly given our history, is to redress the racial injustices. And um, and, and this group that I'm advising hopes to build specific quantitative tools that analysts can use in the future. To show how different policies would affect people of different races, and I think we have to be willing to be open about that, even though that explicitness can seem hard. I think we need to get ourselves there. So I think it's I think it's committing to doing this and then building specific tools and understandings to do it.
0: And then, of course, having very capable uh, public services, and that's what the Kennedy School is all about. So yes. That's super important, investing in governments, because I think this is something that we take for granted and and, and we should not. And then you're really getting into very concrete examples of policy decisions, but you are also getting into how do we change the analytical frameworks that we use to address uh, very specific topics. Do you think that we will be able to look at um, this very complex web of issues use more, rely more, or at least be more aware of the complex systems thinking um, and trying to understand integrative uh, uh, analysis?
1: When I worked for the U.S. Congress, I did find that behind closed doors, uh, so away from the microphones and the cameras, the members of Congress were much more interested in digging into the complexities of policy issues than it would seem from watching them when the cameras and microphones were on. And so I think there is an appetite on the part of of many public officials to dig deeply, but there are political constraints that they feel. And I think also just constraints of time and attention. Um, One of the hardest things I think for public officials is to carve out enough time in a day of meetings and handshakes and so on to (laughs) think seriously, uh, think deeply. Um, and so part of the responsibility for people like I think you and me, Gabriella, is to, is to do some of that deep thinking and then find ways to explain it to policymakers that are not talking down to any in any way. It's not a question that they're not um, not being able to understand, but but they're just being having to move quickly. And we need to find ways to communicate key points um, that don't require all of the footnotes and uh, long sentences and paragraphs of the kinds of reports that we read and write in ways that reflect the complexity but also then to look for communications tools that do justice to the issues but don't belabor the technical parts and thus can be absorbed by people who are rushing from one thing to the next as many people are in the world
0: it's not only getting into the Useful analysis, I would say, but also how do you make sure that people pay attention to it? <laughs> and how yeah. do you get into the setting of the agenda and the mindset of policymakers that, as you say, are, are really the subjects of so many competing influences and, and pressures? That uh, At UNESCO, we are calling uh, for more evidence-based uh, policymaking. We are recognizing that one of the silver linings of this crisis is that science has really helped us navigate very troubled waters. There is a lack of trust now in data, in expertise, in science. We are seeing it with the, the anti-PAX movement. We are seeing it with the misinformation because people believe in that. Uh, we are really uh, having this erosion of trust in general, but also in trust in the policy decisions that might come out from very strong scientific base. And so how, how to rebuild this trust Uh, in which uh, policy policy buy-in and policy acceptance is so dependent.
1: You're highlighting another crucial topic and one that I spend a fair amount of time thinking about. I think there are a few factors that have led to this problem. Um, You highlight one, an important one, which is we have a flow of misinformation, disinformation in online media. Um, But you might think more generally about narrow casting in media which is if you, if you believe certain things, you can find a channel, a station, um, that will feed your preconceived views. If you have a different set of views, you can find some station that will feed those views. And so we end up with rather different factual basis. I think a further problem is that we have some public officials who are using divisiveness as a deliberate political strategy. They think it helps them to accentuate divisions. Um, but I also think that we should take some, we, um, those of us in evidence-based institutions, should, in places of expertise, should bear some responsibility ourselves. Um, we have um, made some mistakes. If you're not an expert and you look at what happened in the financial crisis, for example, um, and the recession that followed, you might well be skeptical that the supposedly smart people <laughs> you know, leading governments really knew what they were doing. Um, And I also think we just have widening cultural divides. Um, We talked about growing income inequality. Um, In the US, at least, there's more sorting based on where you live. So your neighborhood is more people like you. And so we just lost the ability to to understand others. And I think that and thus, to trust others. So what would I do about this? I think part of it is that those people who are in the elites of their societies um, need to ensure that they're really using their talents to advance the broad public interest not just their own interests and so the concern in this country that the people in new york and washington um, i think maybe in europe that the people in brussels are doing things that serve them and their interests and their friends interests and we need all the time i say at the kennedy school to ensure we're working for the broad public interest not for ourselves i think a second part is experts need to offer their expert views with appropriate cautions and humility we should be clear that we don't understand everything about Omicron. We know some things, and we have some valuable advice to offer, but we should not pretend to be omniscient. Um, and we should recognize that we have a lot to learn ourselves. Um, and I think we need to be open to ideas and perspectives from outside our bubbles. Uh, Professor Steve Walt of the Kennedy School wrote a book recently attacking what he views as the foreign policy establishment in this country, which he thinks is badly wrong in various ways. I'm not taking sides in this debate. I have colleagues on both sides of this debate. But it's very useful for Steve to not just accept the establishment view, but to come poke at it with with evidence himself, of course, not just in a, a rant, but in an evidence-based critique. And we need to be open to that. Because the other thing I'd say is that, specifically, living through the pandemic now, we need good science education for non-scientists. So there are too many people, I think, are saying, well, the scientists keep changing their minds. Why should we listen to them? That recognizing that's the nature of science and we're watching it live uh, this last year and a half. And I think people need to understand better where expertise comes from and how, it, how it's formed and how it is critiqued and how it can change. So I think there's I think responsibility, I think we need public leaders who don't look to create divisiveness. We also need experts to, um, to be careful in how we present ourselves uh, not as uh, know-it-alls to our health citizens, but as people who can help us collectively, um, given some things that we've, that we've taken the time and had the experience to know.
0: I really think that you're covering many very important issues, going from bad science to bad communicating science, or uh, not enough investments on science. Um, you go into the question, uh, and I completely agree with you on the question of the herd thinking that we experienced in the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, but now it's also the fact that uh, instead of a multidisciplinary answer, uh, probably because of the nature of the crisis, we're really looking at uh, epidemiologists. But maybe the psychologists might have something to say when we come into into the discussions and the investments that we need to make to be more a tune with the changes that we need you think that you are having more this attitude in the experts than before or we continue to have this i have all the answers i think um,
1: i think it's too soon to know for making enough progress on that front to be honest i think experts can rightfully be frustrated by a certain a certain strand of of anti science uh views of their fellow citizens. And I think, um, so I think the experts need to be patient and to take a, take a long view. And it's not just a matter of talking somebody into what you think right now. It's a matter of building a channel of trust over time. I think you're right about the psychologists, by the way. Um, in our center on the media, we have people who are working on how um, misinformation, disinformation flow across platforms. But we also have people who are experts at how human minds work and why we see certain things, how we respond to confirming evidence or evidence that disproves things we believe and how we can change our views. And so it is both the sort of transmission of information, but also the, how it is received. that We need to understand better.
0: You're completely right. We listen to what we are comfortable with. We just came out from the general conference where we celebrated 75th anniversary. And one of the fantastic outcomes was the adoption by 193 member states of a framework for uh, ethics of artificial intelligence. That is not only the ethical reflection of how these uh, technologies should be more aligned with what makes us human and uh, the respect of human rights, but also uh, very concrete principles of accountability and transparency, and then uh, concrete policy chapters, not only in the platforms, But AI, artificial intelligence, is now being used to inform decisions everywhere. And yes, they can be positive, like like discovering the vaccine in such a short period of time. Uh, But at the same time, you can really create discrimination and fairness to a higher level. And uh, how do you address this question of artificial intelligence? How do we avoid bias? How do we avoid unfair outcomes derived from these technologies?
1: Well, this is a really a fascinating topic and I think one of growing importance. I know I view artificial intelligence as a tool and like other tools, it can be used well or it can be used badly. And I think the responsibility that we all have is to make sure that this, this very powerful new tool is used well, not badly. Um, I think part of that is making sure that the technologists understand and care about the moral consequences of their work. Um, Ash Carter, who is a member of our faculty now, who had previously been the Secretary of Defense in the United States for President Obama, um, and was trained originally as a nuclear physicist and came into national security from a sort of nuclear weapons uh, background. And what Ash has said is that uh, nuclear scientists of his generation were brought up to worry about the consequences of their technological wizardry. And he wants to make sure that today's computer scientists and uh, biotechnologists of the future, um, and obviously the people who build in artificial intelligence also worry about the moral implications of what they do. Um, and so one what Ash Carter does in his work here is to draw attention to, to new technologies, new particular bits of AI, if you will, that um, have been designed with a careful eye the consequences for uh, privacy uh, and fairness so i think it's it's it's, and, and there are courses at harvard that train young technologists in ethics uh as well and right inside of not as a separate topic from technology but embedded in in technology courses so i think part of this is is making people understand that they need to care about this it's not just a matter of the technological excitement it is the implications I think the second part is that um, we need to give people practical tools. Um, and so we have a, we got a new faculty member here I know who works with local law enforcement agencies. Um, he comes from a computer science background, uses big data, but he's using it to help these local law enforcement agencies uh, do their work in a fairer way by giving them some practical um, Algorithms themselves, I think, um, to help them understand what they're doing and and, and the effects that it has. And so I think we, so I think the the understanding the consequences in principle, and then it is actually developing tools to track this. We have other faculty members here as well who are doing work on voting opportunities and so on that are designed to to illustrate and to do it in real time, right? To use the artificial intelligence tools themselves is not enough to come back to this two years later in a paper, you have to sort of illustrate this right away. And and I think the third thing then is that we need to be willing to make policy changes. Um, There's no reason to think that a set of laws about privacy and access to information and broadcasting developed in the 20th century are gonna be sufficient in the 21st century. It would be a miracle if somehow people living 50 years ago had guessed what we're gonna need now or 50 years from now. And so we need to have, we need to be thinking through and then being willing to make changes in the legal regulatory environment to enforce things. That's not, I think the first goal should be understanding, but we also need as a backstop to actually have rules that stop bad uses of AI.
0: It's fascinating though, because I have been overseeing the development of these. Um recommendations on the ethics of artificial intelligence. And it's so dynamic, the technologies, that you need the the developers to have this moral compass. And and you also need to have the tools, but more than anything, you need rules and regulations. The fact is that um, the business model of uh, of the main technologies and even those that are developers um, is is highly concentrated. Uh, The numbers that uh, we advance at the oecd are still uh, valid uh, having five countries producing the majority of these uh, technologies 200 firms 77 uh, percent of the patents uh, and of course uh, half of the world uh, population just not connected to the internet so um, i would say that uh, the lack of uh, real competition because of course there is competition but among the big uh, the weak uh, players uh, might be hindering a more balanced, a more fair outcomes. And do you think it's time for action from the uh-huh. regulators?
1: And I would say in the United States certainly, as in, as in Europe, there's growing interest in regulating uh, monopoly or oligopoly providers um, and regulating monopoly purchasers of labor. So monopsonists, we would say among economists. So I, I think that I think it is important that we look for new regulations, but I can't, I don't know enough myself to know what would work. And I think some of this is in the size of the companies, and some is in the behavior, as you understand, right? And so, you know, if Facebook were had five Facebooks, each would still be quite a significant company. But, but I do think that the social implications of the work that Facebook and other platforms are doing um, have are not understood well enough by people in those companies or by the people outside of them. And I think it's crucially important that UNESCO and the Kennedy School and other places dig hard and fast to understand what's going on. I think it's just uh, the world moves fast and researchers sometimes move slowly and policymakers move more slowly than that. And so we need to accelerate the understanding and we need to then prioritize making the right sorts of legal and regulatory changes. But I don't know what those will turn out to be.
0: Well, thank you so much, and to our listeners to this uh, podcast of our inclusive policy lab here at the social and human science sector at UNESCO. We have been benefiting from the wisdom of Doug Helmeldorf, the dean of the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. I really want to thank you. We can spend hours with you because really you have a, a master of, of of so many angles of the challenges that we're facing, but also of the solutions. And that's where I want to leave our uh, listeners with. There are solutions. There are institutions that are looking at these solutions. There are honest institutions that are investing in science outcomes. And so for us, it has been a privilege.
1: Wonderful, thank you, Gabrielle, so much. It's been wonderful to talk with you.
0: This is uh, Gabriela Ramos, the Assistant Director General for Social and Human Sciences of UNESCO. Stay tuned with our inclusive policy lab.